Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From the Deep of the Desert, The Subversion of Politics and Religion. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 6, 2009, the second Sunday in Advent. When our kids were younger and still lived at home, my family celebrated the four Sundays of Advent by lighting candles on a wreath. In our unofficial version, each week we lit one pink candle each for the prophets, the angels, the wise men, and the shepherds. And then on Christmas Eve, we lit the purple candle for Jesus, the light of the world. The readings this week point us to the prophets as central to the Christmas message. The biblical prophets do more forthtelling about the present than foretelling about the future. Their specialty is prognosis rather than prediction. Prophets discern with unusual clarity the significance of current events and the circumstances of God's people. Based upon their diagnosis, they speak a word from God to provoke his people to change. By speaking God's word to our world, prophets call us to radical transformation. For about a thousand years, from Moses to Malachi, God spoke to Israel by sending them prophets. As Israel's first prophet, Moses outlined the criteria for true and false prophets, Deuteronomy 18 and was himself called a prophet without peer. God sent significant women prophets like Miriam, Huldah, Deborah, and Noadiah. Jeremiah summarized Israel's prophetic history after they had been exiled to Babylon. We read in Jeremiah 7.25, From the time your prophets left Egypt until now, day after day, Again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. Malachi was Israel's last prophet. His book is placed last in the Old Testament, and he was also chronologically the last. Writing about a hundred years after the exiles had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. This dates him in 450 B.C., closest in time to the birth of Jesus. <clears throat> but then after Malachi, there was a 450-year prophetic silence. Why did God not speak? What was he doing? That long silence was finally broken with the first prophet of the New Testament period, John the Baptist. There are three distinct references to John the Baptist in the New Testament which identify him as the forerunner who was prophesied in Malachi 3, 1-4, the one who was to prepare the way of the Lord. Luke pinpoints the time and place when the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, 
Caesar, dates this story to about the year 26 AD. Luke also identifies the political context. He says that the word of God came to John the Baptist when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Then, after naming Rome's political powers, both great and small, Luke identifies Jerusalem's religious establishment. The story, he says, took place during the, reign, during the high priesthood of Ananias and his successor, Caiaphas. These minor details highlight a major theme in the story of Jesus. The word of the Lord through John the Baptist came neither from imperial Rome nor from Israel's religious establishment in the temple. It did not come from someone dressed in fashionable clothes who lived in an expensive palace, said Jesus, nor from a business boardroom, a university laboratory, a ski lodge, or a power lunch. No, God's word to all humanity came from a wild and woolly man who lived in the deep of the desert, on the fringes of society rather than in its corridors of power, at the periphery rather than at the epicenter. The divine messenger and his message originated in an unlikely place and from an improbable source. John would have been easy to ignore if you expected or wanted something normal, safe, or traditional. But neither John nor his message was normal by any stretch of the imagination. John might have been part of the apocalyptic Essenes who opposed the temple in Jerusalem. At least this much is clear. He was a prophet of radical descent. In Luke 7.33, his detractors said he had a demon. In the end, he paid the ultimate price for faithfulness to his prophetic calling. Whereas John's father, Zechariah, had been part of the religious establishment as a priest in the temple at Jerusalem, John fled the comforts and corruptions of the city for the loneliness of the desert. There he dressed in animal skins and ate insects and wild honey. Living on the margins of society, both literally and figuratively, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so the story of Jesus begins not with the celebration of his birth, but with a public address announcement. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with water and with fire. Marcus Borg describes John's message as one of both indictment and invitation. 
Contrary to what we might have expected from such an ascetic man in an austere message, people flocked to John. We read in Mark 1.5, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Even in far away Ephesus, people submitted to the baptism of John. Acts 19.3 We need to repent, said John, because in Jesus the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 3.2 This is the identical message that Jesus preached when he began his own public ministry. We read in Matthew 4.17 From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's also the exact same message that Jesus instructed his followers to proclaim. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 10:7. And this is the message that we today need to hear and follow if we are to experience the story of Jesus. Repent and believe the good news that in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. The kingdom of God that Jesus announced and embodied is what life would be like here on earth if God were king and the rulers of this world were not. The ancient Hebrews had a word for this, shalom, or human well-being. But entrance into this kingdom requires a countercultural choice. John's terrible indictment to repent is a tender invitation to be our best selves. Repentance doesn't mean to feel bad, but to think differently. To repent doesn't mean to grovel in self-hatred, morbid introspection, or pious sorrow. Instead, it consists of both outward acts and an inward disposition. When you repent, you turn around, change directions, choose a different path, and make a radical rupture. Repentance signals an abrupt end to life on autopilot or to business as usual. Why such urgency in abandonment? Why not go home and talk it over with your family? Won't friends think that you're crazy, impulsive, and even irresponsible? Won't you regret such a categorical decision? Why not hedge your bet? Jesus invited Peter Andrew, James, and John to reorient their lives by following him because in his own person the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus announced and embodied God's rule or reign on earth right here, right now. There was an unmistakable element of cosmic fulfillment in his preaching, teaching, and healing. The kairos has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe the good news. Genuine repentance is a deeply personal and individually unique act before God and my neighbor. Repentance has its communal aspects, and if you're lucky, others might help you. But no one can repent for another. You can only repent for yourself. In this sense, repentance can be quite simple, as observed by the Syrian abbot John Climacus back in the 6th century. Let your prayer be very simple, said John. For the tax collector and the prodigal son, just one word was enough to reconcile them to God. John the Baptist urged his listeners to prove their spiritual intentions by concrete deeds rather than by claims of religious or political affiliation. Some people took him at his word, but many in the political elite and religious establishment did not. These political and religious leaders who rejected John got one thing right, though. They understood that his message was not only deceptively simple, it was deeply subversive. About six months after John emerged from the desert like some scraggly lunatic and baptized Jesus, he was beheaded at the whim of Herod the Tetrarch. At a party one night, Herod capitulated to the sadistic demand of his girlfriend's daughter. John was a forerunner of Jesus, but he was also a forth-teller to Herod. Having rebuked Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife, Matthew 14. But as with many perverse politicians, Herod had his way with him who had spoken truth to power. And so John was beheaded. As for the religious establishment, John, Jesus tells us that the Pharisees and the experts in the law spurned John's call to baptismal repentance. And in so doing, Luke 7.30 rejected God's purpose for themselves. The prophetic word of God from John the Baptist then did not originate with the state powers or the religious establishment, nor did it find a receptive audience with them. The claim of God's kingdom on my life, John preached, is ultimate. That means that the claims of the state and religious establishment and claims of race, gender, culture, and money are, at best, penultimate. The earliest and most radical Christian confession was simple. Jesus is Lord. By direct implication, Caesar is not Lord or God, and neither are all the other many false gods of money, sex, and power. With his Advent announcement, John the Baptist urges us to spurn anything and everything that hinders ultimate allegiance to Christ the Lord. He invites us to make our crooked ways straight, 
to flatten all hilly terrain and to prepare space for the birth of the Messiah into our own lives. For books this week, <clears throat> I review a book called Ten Commandments for the Environment. Pope Benedict XVI speaks out for creation and justice. The author is Woodine Koenig Bricker, Notre Dame, Indiana, Ave Maria Press, 2009, 152 pages. In this little book about Pope Benedict XVI, not by Pope Benedict, I might add, Woodin Koenigbricker summarizes the Pope's environmental theology. She combs through his many homilies, speeches, addresses, and teachings, and those of the Magisterium's broader teaching office, and cherry-picks what she considers to be his most salient statements on the subject. She then inserts a litany of Pope Benedict's quotations in a cut-and-paste manner into her own sparse narrative. The Ten Commandments for the Environment did not originate with Pope Benedict. They come from Bishop Giampaolo Cripaldi in a 2005 conference on ethics and the environment. According to Cripaldi, they explain in ten points the most important aspects of the chapter on the environment in the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, 2004. And even though Benedict has not published an extensive statement on environmental issues, insists Koenigbricker, the Ten Commandments by Cripaldi reflect the essence of the Pope's teaching and message. After two introductory chapters, one chapter is devoted to each of the Ten Commandments. Benedict takes a complementary approach toward the relationship between science and religion in general, and between evolution and faith in particular. Science needs ethics. Technological means help us to manipulate the environment, but only moral ends can give guidance as to why, when, where, and how. I especially appreciated the many current examples given by Koenig Bricker, like Easter Island, genetically modified organisms, the Three Gorges Dam in China, and so on. The doctrine of creation about earthly life is intimately connected with the doctrine of redemption about eternal life. Creation is not divine, nor does it enjoy an absolute value. Nor should we demean creation, for it's a gift from God to humanity that we must use wisely and well, rather than abuse. An ethic of the environment grapples with broader social issues, like our culture of consumerism, and legal issues of collaboration on international treaties. Sustainable economic development must include the universal destination of goods. The idea that earth, air, water, food, and energy belong to all humanity and not to the privileged, powerful minority. 
Perhaps the most important takeaway from this short book is its insistence that being green is a matter of Christian ethics as much as it is about political ecology. The author, Woodin Koenig Bricker, the title of the book, Ten Commandments for the Environment, Pope Benedict XVI speaks out for creation and justice. For film this week, I review A Serious Man, 2009. Larry Gopnik is a serious man with serious problems. In this black comedy that reinvents the biblical Job, directors Ethan and Joel Cohen explore whether he can hope for any answers. Larry's respectable Jewish life as a physics professor has blown apart. A student tries to bribe him and then threatens to sue for defamation, while a tenure committee debates his fate. His next-door neighbor is a scowling anti-Semite. His son Danny smokes dope and watches TV. His foul-mouthed daughter Sarah wants a nose job. Their crazy uncle Arthur hogs the bathroom. And his wife Judith has kicked him out of the house and into the Jolly Roger Motel in favor of his best friend. In short, Larry has lost track of Hashem, the unspeakable name of God. The film follows Larry's search for wisdom with three successive rabbis. The problem, he says, seems to be that, quote, you can't know, but you're still held responsible. Visual metaphors for Larry's confusion abound a dry and blighted swimming pool at the decrepit motel, arcane math equations that fill every centimeter of a blackboard, horrifying nightmares, twisting a TV antenna on the roof to find a clear signal, dope-induced blurry vision, ominous x-rays from a doctor, an outrageously absurd sign from God, and, in the very last minute or two of the film, a black tornado about to tear through town. The lyrics of Grace Slick and Jefferson Airplane begin and end this movie. When the truth is found to be lies, and all the hope within you dies. The film A Serious Man a black comedy by the Cohen brothers. For poetry this week, and for Advent, we've posted a poem by Denise Levertov. Denise Levertov lived from 1923 to 1997. The title of her poem is On the Mystery of the Incarnation. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, not to a dolphin, 
to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it in no other is godlike. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. Denise Levertov on the mystery of the incarnation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the second Sunday in Advent, December 6, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.